Barris the Cutter. That was uh, <clears throat> Echo and the Bunny Man. One of, one of the most underrated groups of all time, by the way. That that, that was a hell of a band. And um, Ian McCullough, the singer, you know, I never realized how much of a baby face he had because I was he was a contemporary of mine. And uh, you know, I and I had a bit. I didn't really notice it when I was when I was uh, in my twenties, and I was listening to Echo and the Buddy Man. And I remember their first record, Alligators, with Rescue. I'm like, wow, this song is amazing. And that was a time where all these uh, kind of nouveau psychedelic rock bands were coming out of England. It was a thing. You had uh, Echo and the Bunny Man. You had um, the Psychedelic Furs. Teardrop Explodes. All three of those bands were all talked about in the same breath. U2 was kind of in that mix. And to some extent, the Simple Minds. But it was usually those four bands with U2 kind of being sort of lumped in there. And um, I saw Echo and the Bunny Man one time. This is in the 90s. I saw them in the 90s. Like, uh, I think the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty sure about that. I was getting confused with television. I, I saw them around the same time. Television were really good, by the way. So were Echo the Bunnymen. They were great. I think I saw them at the same venue, which was the Great American Musical in San Francisco. And then years later, I was uh, working with uh, or working at eMusic, and we were doing this. We were doing these live chats, right? These uh, sort of live artist chats. And and I was in charge of uh, doing these interviews. So one of the interviews I did was with Echo and the Bunny Man, because I think there was an, an album that we had on the site or something. I don't know what it was. 
but it was the weirdest interview. Um, and I think if I'm not mistaken, it, because this was 2001 and the technology just wasn't there, it was coming out in a chat interview, but I was interviewing the band and somehow I was getting put into chat. It was, it was strange. Anyway, uh, Ian McCall, they were in LA. They were, they were in limos on their way to the hotel in LA and E. McCullough was shit-faced. I couldn't, I couldn't get any semblance of a, of an interview out of the guy, but Will Sargent, who is the uh, guitar player stepped in and I actually really, I got along with him because he did this one record called, um, I think it's called music for soundtracks and it's him doing like experimental ambient guitar, uh, soundscapes music, music for films or music for soundtracks. And, um, anyway, I had listened to it and thought it was really good. And he was, he was stunned that somebody had listened to that record. And, um, that was an interesting moment in time. The drummer on the video, Pete DeFreitas, He's a member of the 27 club. And if you haven't read the book, the 27s, I, I recommend it actually. Cause a long time ago, when I first started doing this and first started doing interviews, uh, I interviewed one of the authors for the, I think it was, I think I interviewed the, the illustrator. I don't think I had the author on cause there's illustrations in the book and the cover, but the illustrator was, you know, friends with the guy who wrote the book. And it's all these, musicians who died before they were 28 years old and you know, Jimi Hendrix is in that group. Jim Morrison's in that group and Peter Freitas, who's the drummer. And so what they did is they kind of got into what their lives were like just before they turned or were supposed to turn 28 before they hit their Saturn return. And Peter Freitas, story is pretty interesting because he winds up leaving the band, moving to America living in new Orleans and starting this other band and, and his, his story is just nuts. Like the guy, the guy was living at 150 miles an hour and which included of course drugs. And there was only one general outcome with that. And that's um, either death or rebirth. And for Pete Freitas, it was the, uh, the death part. Anyway, the cutter kind of a theme here because it's a pitch in baseball. I was trying to find a baseball song, sort of. That was the reason why I was a little bit late today. I was trying to find the right song, right? You got to find that right song to start the show. If you don't find the right song, then the show can't be right. And uh, behind me, if you were here watching the show, and if you are listening to the podcast, thank you very much for doing that. Appreciate it. Uh, but if you're here watching the show, I have a wonderful backdrop of a baseball field shot at dusk with the uh, stadium lights. And baseball, by the way, I'm going to come right out and say best sport ever. Uh, and I really like football. I like the strategy of football. There are things about football that I really do. But baseball is a unique sport. And what makes it unique is that every single player is out there on their own. They're on an island. You know, in, in football, you're kind of, if you're a, 
a cornerback and you're guarding a receiver, covering a receiver, you're on an island. But you have help over the top of the safety. So technically speaking, you're not really on your own. You are for a little bit. And if you get beat downfield one-on-one, that's it. It's on you, right? But by and large, with football, you're not on an island. It's a team sport. You all have to pull together, literally and figuratively. Same with basketball. You can have you can be one-on-one with somebody, but if you blow past them, there's somebody else there to get their hands up in your face and you know keep you from doing what you want to do, which is score score a bucket. So baseball, that's not the case. Baseball, nobody's going to make you help you catch the ball. Nobody's going to help you hit the ball. Nobody's going to help you throw the ball. You have to do it all on your own. But you also have to interact with others in order to make things work. So to me, baseball is the purest Aquarian sport. It is truly Aquarian because you're an individual, and yet you have to interact and be able to play well with others. And as far as um, eccentric characters, baseball, hands down, has the most eccentric characters. And the most eccentric of the eccentric characters are the pitchers. Because there's so much stress and pressure on being a pitcher. Every single pitch it determines your value. Think about that. Every single time the pitcher does something, throws the ball, and I know it's just a sport, whatever, that if they throw it in the wrong place, that ball's going to go over the fence, right? Or it's going to go into a place where the guy's going to get to run around the bases. It's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. So pitchers tend to be very eccentric to be able to deal with that pressure. One of these days, I'll do a straight baseball show, which will bore the shit out of people. But I could make it interesting. I guarantee you, because there's so many oddball players. And the other thing about baseball is the dimensions of the field. Now, baseball, I will tell you right now, is a Freemasonic sport. Everything about it is mathematically lined up. It's all sacred geometry. Threes, nines. Sixes, they all play a role. You know, nine innings, three strikes, right? Three outs. So it's all based on trinities and threes. And the dimensions of the field are unlike any other field. It is a freaking diamond. Okay, it's a diamond. It's not a, a square. It's not a rectangle. In football, you get the rectangle. In basketball, you get the rectangle. Hockey, a little bit different. Hockey's more of an oval because you get to go behind the goal, right? The goalie. So hockey's a little bit different. The energy in hockey is different. I like hockey. If I'd lived in the East Coast, I probably would have played hockey. Because I'm not very, I wasn't a very fast runner. But on skates, who knows? It might be a little bit different. And uh, certainly I could have been tenacious in hockey. But baseball, you have this diamond. And so energetically, it's just different. And I and and uh, we're coming up on opening day here, and some of my best moments in my life have to do with baseball. Either when I was young and I played it, 
or when I was uh, managing baseball for about five years in Austin. And every time I would step onto that field as a manager, whether it was practice, but particularly games, there was just something energetically about being in that space that brought everything together. It made everything whole in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of it has to do with the geometry of the sport. And in every single major league park and mostly probably minor league parks too. And I've talked about this. Every field is situated so that home plate is kind of in the Southeast, which means that center field is, you know, angled towards the Northeast, Southwest and Northeast, right? Southwest, Northeast. And that's because they align it to guess what? Sirius. This is true. Every single major league park I've been in has been aligned exactly the same way. And I remember reading this somewhere. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's how it works. They, 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 it's, they do this. So that's how deeply embedded like um, Astro, what do you call it? There's an actual word for it. When you align, it, it's not Astro cartography. There's a word that describes aligning um, a structure so that you get the optimal celestial influence. I remember I was at this uh, uh, place in Idaho called uh, Trinity Hot Springs. There was, there was a company called Trinity Water, which was around in the 90s. And I got to know the people who uh, had this water company. I was the first journalist to, to break the story. on A very unique company, honestly. Um, these two guys from Idaho had found this hot spring in spring, just a spring in general and a hot spring. And they thought, well, let's, let's bottle this water because it was coming up through all this quartz crystal. And so I did a story on them and um, I actually went to like where they did all the stuff. And so the way that they had figured it out is they actually, their little pump house that they were getting the water out of, they, they aligned it celestially. The guy who they were, these guys were pretty eccentric. They were cool. They were pretty eccentric. And, uh, that was so funny. I, you know, I don't often back in the day, I didn't really indulge very much in, in cannabis in my later years, but one of these nights I was hanging out with these guys from, uh, Trinity, Trinity water. And, uh, they decided that they were going to, indulge a bit before they uh, went out to dinner in North Beach. So I was with them. And so I, I indulged with them. And that was actually a pretty interesting night. Uh, great guys. Too bad the company didn't make it. A lot of it had to do with the fact that they were so remote. But uh, super cool. Really cool. Anyway, welcome to the show. Let me get into uh, Chatlandia. And uh, let's see what you guys are up to. All right. Best baseball song is Marlins Will Soar by Scott Staff. Oh, my God. That's funny. Uh, K&S, why am I not surprised you would have that info? Oh, we got some. We got to go way back here. Let's see. Who do we have here? We got Renee. What's going on, Renee? Chris and Steve in the house. There's my man, Ryan, Queen Lisa. Good morning, Grinds. I like that. It's like friends, but with a G because we're all grinding in life right now. JJ, rain the blanc. 
Sony in the house, Miss Nakia. What's going on? Uh, let's see who else do we have. Hucklebuck four eleven, Kelly B. Good to see you, Kelly. There's Tondar, Empath, Mark Matheny. Speaking of baseball, there's my man Mark. Uh, Catherine Kramer, Double K. Morning back at you, Double B. Beth Berry. And uh, Fran, C.C. Jones, Wendy says, hello back, you beautiful person. So, so positive. I love it. Uh, let's see. TJ, what's going on, Thomas? Good to see you. I guess Eric Adams might be miffed. Eric, I, so I started to dig into the Eric Adams world last night, and it gets really fucking weird. We're going to get into him. We'll do a little bit of uh, some Ted Kaczynski talk, too. Already know this song was not for me. How could you not? How could you not like Echo and the Bunny Man? Oh, my God. Amazing. I just can't do this style of music. So that's okay. It's not for everybody. Did you like the universe echoes back? Wasn't Echo and the Bunny Man who did Killing Moon? Yes, they did. They're fucking great. I love Echo and the Bunny Man. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have? JJ loves it. Uh, what did Mark say? Mm -mm -mm -mm. Hanging on, hanging, hanging in on the little blue marble. Sounds depressing when I unmute it. Looks depressing too. <laughs> Kelly, you're Scorpio. Come on. Let's go. Break on through to the other side. Uh, let's see. Miss Nakia says he has good hair. Concentrating that. He's a guy I would not date. Just saying. You never know. You never know. Hell of a headache. If I listen to it, laugh aloud, but I'm not getting mad and leaving chat over it. Well, that's good. JJ says, I love this music. We can't, you know why I think there's a difference here. Let me tell you why. Because Kelly is younger and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, JJ is a contemporary of mine and Ian McCullough which means we have Neptune and Scorpio. So we love this hypnotic, dark, slightly trancey, transcendent music. It's in our astrological DNA. It's not for everybody, but it's okay for us. Uh, Steve is in the house. What's going on, Steve? You saw the psychedelic first. That's that's a band, Crocodiles, Alligator. Thank you, Mpf. I got my... Uh, I got my reptiles mixed up. It was crocodiles, not alligators. Marillion was a similar band from that time as well. Marillion, I could not get behind. I remember people like just raving about Marillion. Marillion to me is more out of the Genesis world. They're more prog rock. All those weird time signatures and, you know, which I wouldn't necessarily put them in that, that, that group, but they're, they're like the new school of British prog. Uh, let's see what else we have. Limos make me laugh. I never understood them at all. 
Oddly enough, I do like some of the Smiths, which is similar. If you're talking about how soon is now, yes, I would agree. There's uh, Christine. What's going on, Christine? Well, I'm not here to be a sourpuss over musical tastes like some folks. <laughs> People get upset, upset over weird things. Uh, Mark says, the first four Marillion albums are gold. Third and fourth ones are two of the greatest albums ever. Love the fish. So Mark, Mark likes his prog. Uh, let's see. Cremo, Christine is making some sauerkraut and homegrown cabbage. All right. What's going on, Nicholas? Morning to you as well. Uh, we got we got some Marillion love going on in the chat room. How about that? There she is. Jake Kaiser, Gucci to goats, our nascent star. Steve's a big, uh, big baseball guy. I don't think there are any sour pusses in Robert's wonderful chat. I don't think so either. There are no sour pusses. My eyes do tend to glaze over during sports talk. I'm telling you, I could do a baseball show, and by the time it was over, you'd like baseball. Baseball is in sacred time, not clock time. Absolutely. Baseball is ambient, man. It is an ambient sport. Completely ambient. Uh, let's see. I'm interested to learn more about the baseball Masonic connection. Maybe we'll do a show on that. And that way, all you non-baseball fans. Willie Mays just got mentioned. Willie Mays is a Freemason. Did you know that? There's, there's some significant Freemasons in the history of baseball. Ty Cobb was a big Freemason. I'm pretty uh, Pete Rose's father was a Freemason. I don't know if Pete is a Freemason. Uh, put me in coach. Oh, yeah, Centerfield. Yeah. Who else do we have? Um, hey, what's going on, Michael? Good to see you. Steve, the uh, Doc Ellis. <laughs> What a character. What a character. You don't have to be sorry for anything, Kelly. Uh, what's going on, Tamara? Scrubby's here. I love the metal granny. Y you know, the metal granny was not for everybody. I loved her, man. I loved her message. She was great. It's just hard to go back to the music of young men when you know there are metal grannies out there singing about love and hate, right? I thought Granny and Lamb, uh, Granny and Want to Be Lamb Chop was hilarious. Good, good. I'm glad. Friend of a friend went to a Padre game and they moved all unvaxxed to a separate area of the stands. Oh my fucking my god! You're Neptune's and Sag, so you're. Um, oh man, yeah, you're not Neptune and Scorpio, so you're Gen X. Love my prog. That's my. I love some prog. I don't like prog every year. Or I just don't. What am I saying? I don't like. I don't like all prog. It gets a little too cutesy for me at times. So I, I love early Genesis. 
I think early Genesis and yes, are my favorite, my favorite prog bands. And, um, I know everybody's really into like general prog people into general giant. I never got general giant. Not, not my thing. I like prog when it kind of bleeds into jazz fusion, like brand X. That's my favorite prog. And, it, and the, the early Genesis stuff, I think is magical and mystical and very British and weird. And I love it. I love early Genesis. I think, I think, uh, Foxtrot and selling England by the pound are just phenomenal records. And yes, with John Anderson's cosmic ramblings and, uh, and yes, was just a, the, the rhythm section of yes was so muscular, right? Bill Bruford and Chris Squire, just really fantastic. And even Alan White was a pretty decent drummer. And I'm going to here, here's the blasphemy. I'm not a huge Pink Floyd fan. And I know every, everybody worships Pink Floyd. I, mm. right? I, I didn't, that's like the Sid stuff, eh. The soundtrack stuff, eh. You know, there's some tracks on on Echoes and, and uh, Adam Hart Mother that I like, but not the whole thing. Clearly, Dark Side of the Moon is great. There's no denying that. I do like Wish You Were Here. And, um, I, you know, I sort of got off the train after that. Jasper started talking about animals and here you come. Jasper's favorite uh, music is the soundtrack to the Broadway show cats, but you didn't know that he's a big cats person. And I hate it when he puts cats on, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber in this weird place between rock and roll and, you know, show tunes, weird place uncomfortable and it's like whenever he puts cats on like turn that shit off but you know you got to let them have their music every now and then too i don't want to dominate everything here okay why don't we uh transition into the meat of the show and we're gonna be talking about uh eric adams today i kind of got into him yesterday i did some more digging around with eric adams and So there were two things that um, really crossed my radar with him. And I, let me see if I want to get into this guy, Don Peebles, a little bit. Because there's something happening in New York City. There's this really significant uh, changing of the guard in New York City. And it's no coincidence that somebody like Bill de Blasio who represents this connection with uh, New York and kind of this, I guess, old school. Bloomberg is the extension of old, old school New York, and I'm going to use the word Jewish power, okay? He is, Bloomberg is the, he's the, uh, he, he's the, he's the exit, right? Like if you're, if you're on the freeway and you're going to a place and your destination, you've got to take the exit and then you get there, it's Bloomberg. You know, he represents the, the apotheosis of New York as New York as we knew it, right? Coming in on the heels of Rudy Giuliani, who, um, 
you know, got into broken windows, which is a, a policing strategy, which apparently all these community people in New York have a really hard time with. You know, and a brief, just a brief, brief, brief synopsis of broken windows is that there were these two ex-cops from Boston <clears throat> and they did a lot of work and study on crime. And um, they came to the conclusion that when the physical world reflected lawlessness and disorder, then lawlessness and disorder began to become amplified and feed upon itself. So when Rudy Giuliani hired these guys to help fix the lawlessness and disorder, because they had written this paper on broken windows, and they had figured out that doing something as fundamental as replacing a broken window would change the, the vibration um, of the neighborhood, right? People would look at the, the neighborhood as having more, you know, more stability, more order, whereas the broken window was an invitation for more lawlessness and more crime. So they made it a point to go into areas and make sure that these structures, which had been, you know, broken or desecrated or damaged, that they were they were fixed, and they did this consistently, while at the same time they were working on doing their best to eliminate the people who were doing the window breaking, theoretical window breaking, the crime, right? So Rudy Gianni hired these guys, and they looked at what was going on in New York, and they literally started from the ground up. In this case, it was below the ground up. So they started with the subways and they said, you cannot let any subway get out of here with graffiti on it because that was a big thing, right? They, the graffiti artists would go into the subway yards when the subways were parked and they would tag them. And so these subways were literally uh, rolling murals, billboard signs for the graffiti artists so Giuliani hired all these people, like if there was graffiti on the subway, it'd be painted. It was, they were not allowed to leave the yard. They would not give the graffiti artists the pleasure of seeing their work roll through the tunnels of New York or on the trestles of New York. This wasn't going to happen. So there was that. The other thing had to do with turnstile jumpers because turnstile jumping it was pretty common. And the broken windows guys were like, no, you can't do that. You can't let them do that. Because it, again, is another symptom of this broken window. So what Giuliani did is he brought in these, these vans and he put them outside of the subway stations. <laughs> and if somebody jumped the turnstile, they got nabbed. And then they, they ran their, their uh, license if they had it. And eight to nine times out of 10, they had priors. And a lot of times they had warrants. It was really easy. Pick them up, get them off the streets, right? So what did that do? Well, it dissuaded people from jumping the turnstiles. So broken windows started there. And then it began to move into uh, like neighborhoods and making sure that these things that I'm talking about weren't happening. That also included much more rigorous profiling for better or worse, right? 
So a lot of these neighborhood, whatever they are, um, consultants or, you know, they have, they have these, these neighborhood activists. This is, this is where the new bourgeoisie, the new ruling class comes out of neighborhood activism. I'm going to show you that a little bit today, but they're not into it. They don't like broken windows. It's because they're not the ones that are determining how things are uh, going to unfold in their neighborhood. They don't want the outside influences. They don't want the city to come in or they don't want the mayor to come in or they don't want some external form of order. They want to be the order, which I'll show you. Right. And ultimately this is where Eric Adams comes out of. We know that he was a police, by the way, I'm going to say it right now. Eric Adams is not very bright. Now there are people that are bright. Like if you know, you saw Obama cruising around the white house yesterday. Acting like he was president. He didn't have to act very hard, did he? Say what you will about Obama. He's not dumb. He's fairly intelligent. Although he's lost without a teleprompter, which is weird. But anyway, I digress. Eric Adams is not bright. And I have actual some proof to that. I mean, we know that he's dyslexic, which means he doesn't read. Okay. Apparently Donald Trump has a learning disorder too. And apparently Donald Trump doesn't read either. So you see, I'm not sitting here just taking pot shots at Eric Adams. When you don't read, you're dependent upon either the spoken word or people telling you things so that you get your information from somebody right? Because you don't read books. Eric Adams is like that. So if you think about it, um, having somebody like Eric Adams in power is great because you can tell him anything. And he's, again, he's just not very bright. And I'll show you why in a second here. So he comes up through the ranks of... I wouldn't say he's a community organizer, but because he's elected to like these positions inside of the, you know, this borough in Brooklyn, which he was very, he was the president of this borough. That's a very powerful position because you can green light or red light projects inside of your district. And he clearly was politically motivated at, at, at least one project, which I'm going to show you. But then there's this other thread with Eric Adams, which is quite dark. And I'm going to bring that into the discussion as well. Anyway, welcome to 15 Minutes of Flame. If you're new to the show, I hope you're new to the show. We could use some new people every now and then, especially people like Echo and the Bunny Man. No, I'm just kidding, Kelly. All right. So let's get into... Um... By the way, I did see Teardrop Explodes. They were good. Well, were they good? I, yes, I think they were good. They were good. And Julian Cope was kind of an asshole. Um, there was this one song, was it called Tiny Children or something like that? It's a very quiet song. And he yelled at the audience to be quiet while he was singing. It's like, 
dude. Get over yourself. Okay. Um, let's see where I want to go. Okay. Um, I'm going to get into, let me show you this. So this is, um, this is a project that um, Eric Adams vetoed. And this was not that long ago, right? This was in 2021. So Eric Adams went from being the president of this borough to becoming mayor. He used this position to um, launch himself into the uh, position of being mayor. So let me show you this. And I'm going to go through, I'm going to read some of the comments here. So this is Borough President Eric Adams rejects proposals for 840 Atlantic Avenue in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. So this was the building that they were hoping to build. It's a mixed-use building. Of course, it's your kind of um, standardized blueprint, Agenda 21. Um, stack them and pack them. You know, down here, you've got your Starbucks or whatever, right? And they have some affordable housing in there because theoretically they have to. And they've got some other um, apartments that are not affordable housing. I mean, it's not bad looking. I've seen worse. If you're listening, how would I describe it? It looks somewhere between like a cross between, um, I don't know, com computer chips, transistors, and, and, and uh, honeycomb, but sort of square and vertical. Let's get into this a little bit. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams rejected proposals to rezone a large assemblage of lots that would have supported a new 18-story mixed-use property in Prospect Heights. The proposed development site is located at 840 Atlantic Avenue, which was projected to yield 300 rental apartments, including up to 95 affordable housing units, 51,000 square feet of lower-level retail, and a 7,490-square-foot dance studio. That is a big fucking dance studio. The project team responsible for the property includes developer Vanderbilt Atlantic Holdings, LLC, with IMC Architecture at the helm of the design. The proposed building would have contained 342,610 square feet and would have topped out at around 195 feet. Zoning map amendments were required to permit the construction of a tall, dense, mixed-use property in a neighborhood that primarily comprises low-rise residential mixed-use commercial properties. Okay, so they're trying to rezone this thing to get this building in there. And theoretically, like, so this is what the building would look like. It would be next to this building. Is there really that much of a difference? I really don't think so. And look what they have here. They got a McDonald's and, you know, it's, it's just, it's a lot, right? And like, is it really going to be that much taller than this building? The answer to that is no. Does it look that dissimilar? The answer is no, right? 
So this is another view of it. This is kind of the other side of it and stuff like that. So yeah, you got some brownstones over here, whatever. Okay, that's the building. You can see the height, schematic cutaway. So on May 17th, 2021, Adams held a remote public hearing on these zoning map and text amendments. There are 15 speakers on the item with only one in opposition and 13 in support. Okay. So you have Adams who's in the 15, right? You have one in opposition and 13 who are in support, including a representative of 32 BJ service employees, internal international union, 32 BJ who noted the developers commitment to providing well-paying building service jobs. Yeah. You've got to be able to maintain the building, right? So out of 15 people, 13 are for it, one isn't, and then you have Eric Adams. You have a major union that is also there supporting the project. Community leaders present at the meeting requested that the affordable housing units originally proposed that 80% area median income AMI should be reserved for individuals and households at 60% AMI. They also protested that the rezoning proposals would eventually lead to drastic contextual changes to the surrounding neighborhood as a result of increased allowable height and density in a public response. Adams said that he generally supports the developer's proposal to increase density along wide commercial streets in this specific area of Prospect Heights, which would have, which would have facilitated the new building. He acknowledged that the project presents, represents a large jump in density from what is, what is permitted by the underlying district. Adams challenged the developer to limit the height of the property to 145 feet, offer more deeply affordable housing units, increase ground floor setbacks, and commit to extending portions of the sidewalks surrounding the property to improve pedestrian access, among other recommendations inspired by feedback from community leaders. Okay. So he basically rejected this. Nope, not going to do it. Well, why? Was he really looking after the best interests of the neighborhood to make sure that this building didn't stick out like a sore thumb to make sure that there was more affordable housing? No, those are just things that he threw out there to buttress his cause. If you go down into the comments, ah, we'll learn a bit more, won't we? So here we go. This is from Jay. This is utterly embarrassing. I'm confused as to how you can have a massive have massive super talls down the block. So what we're not seeing is that they're just down the block, very large buildings, okay? But something like this is too massive for the neighborhood. What a way to ruin a neighborhood by keeping the one-story McDonald's building there instead of a much, much needed density. Now, I'm not a big fan of the Agenda 21 thing, but in that area, whatever, it kind of fits. It works, right? This now serves as, as a stupid precedent for any developments to follow down the Atlantic Avenue corridor. Very embarrassing. In a part of Brooklyn where development such as this would have been opportune, I don't like this guy already. Now, this guy, Arnello, goes on and on and on. He's, he's not for this project. He's for another project. Wow. Why was this rejected? What was he thinking? I would reject all the Brooklyn super talls and not this. And then you have Arnello coming in. The answer is because Eric Adams and Lori Cumbo have signed a letter supporting CB8's McCrown vision for the Atlantic Avenue. 
The new council member, Crystal Hudson, also supports CB8. CB8 has planned this vision since 2018, and the CPC refused to sign on to it. And secretly met with developers to get them to ask for higher zoning. But they're losing this battle. Now Eric Adams will be the next mayor, and we'll have to follow through with his promises to the Prospect Heights community. Okay, so keep just remember these names, Lori Cumbo and Crystal Hudson. So we're going to keep going here. Why? Arnello, this guy, whoever Arnello is, is a shill. This building is welcome for the area, much better than the smell of cheap McDonald's food. I hope this isn't an indication of a future pay-to-play mayoral administration. Of course it is. I hope we're not going to have another mayor who is anti-development. Well, this should spur a slew of applications that New York City get approved for Adams takes office. Should be a busy fourth quarter. So people are hip to this. All right. So these are the notes, blah, 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 right? So essentially what Adams does here is he vetoes this project or another project, right? One that he has been working with on the side. And he's doing it with this woman, Crystal Hudson, and this other woman, Lori Cumbo. Now, when we look at Crystal Hudson, she is a city council person. And voila, there she is. Let me straighten this up a little bit here. District 35, Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, Crown Heights, Prospect Heights, Bed-Stuy. Okay, so this is where it all starts. Where you have this person, because I can't call her a man or a woman. Supposedly, she's a woman. She definitely qualifies as a person because that's the only way I could really identify her, although she does look somewhat feminine, right? Somewhat female, although it, it's shaky. So they will take her and they will groom her just like they groomed Eric Adams, just like they groomed David Peterson. Many of these people are not qualified to do anything, by the way, particularly Eric Adams. So Crystal Hudson is the council member for New York City's District 35 in Brooklyn, representing the neighborhoods of Prospect Heights, Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, and parts of Crown Heights, blah, 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 blah. Uh, let's see. She was elected in 2021 and made history as one of the first out gay black women ever elected in New York City. Crystal is a community organizer and a public servant committed to making government more accessible for more people and delivering a just recovery for all New Yorkers in the wake of a global pandemic, economic crisis, and racial reckoning. Her commitment to public service is personal. It began when her mother started exhibiting signs of what would later be diagnosed as Alzheimer's disease. As the only child of a single mother, Crystal became the primary caregiver for her mother. She experienced firsthand how difficult it is for working families to navigate complex bureaucratic systems. So this is an interesting just tidbit here, right? If she'd had a family, she wouldn't have had to go through all of these bureaucratic services in order to help her mother. And this really speaks to the fundamental breakdown 
of our society, right? It's like, okay, and I'm not, look, shit happens. People get divorced. People are imperfect. I get it, right? I get it. But she is a cog in the model. Single mother, only child. You know, where's the family? If there's a family there, things are easier to navigate. You have people that can step in, help out, right? This is why family is important. You get to shoulder the load, especially if the family is a good family, a loving family. Not all families are perfect. Right? We get to work our shit out in our families. You know, and everybody's got a different family story. So where does she go? She goes to the extended family, which is the government. Hospitals. Social services. And that's the story of Black America. She is the, um, the manifestation of what took place in 1964, 1965 with Johnson's New Deal. With the eradication of the Black family, supporting this idea that women could be supported by the federal government with welfare and entitlements. While their men were shipped off to Vietnam because they weren't in college, they didn't have deferments, and they were either killed, mangled, or came back as damaged goods. And I've looked at the statistics, you know, before I, I've brought them up. There is a before and after with the black American family. And the before and after is right around 1967. Before 1967, the percentage of both a man and a woman, a mother and a father and a black family is much higher than after 19. It's like it peaks and then it starts to go downhill and it's never really recovered. So this is why you have somebody like Crystal Hudson. She is the byproduct of social conditioning. It's exactly what she is. She's a byproduct of social conditioning. There's no two ways about it. So she's a synthetic being. It's exactly what she is. And this is what happens when you have um, the state as the midwives of what is essentially um, a new race. And you don't have to be so-called black to be a part of it. You just have to be part of some uh, of an entitled group or a group that has been um, nurtured by entitlement. Those are synthetic. It's like having a family in a family that's marginally functional. And I'd say more than marginally functional. Let's, let's just say it's, it's, it's um, fundamentally functional versus the extended family, which is the government. Now that, that, that fairly functional family would be something akin to, oh, I don't know, organic food. We're about as close to organic food as you can get through a family. By the way, the food thing is going to get bad. I haven't really talked about it a lot, but the whole, the, the price of fertilizer, the trains, they've got this thing now with the trains, which are going to theoretically stop carrying 
livestock, okay, and meat, that's coming. So they are just rapidly moving us as quickly as they can into slurry and bug world. I'm just going to leave that there for now because I don't want to spend a whole show talking about it. But this is what happens, right? Now you have the Crystal Hudsons of the world who wind up being raised by the system, which is synthetic. And so they become synthetic beings. They're, they're not organic. They're not natural. Sorry, they're not. They're, they, they essentially mutate, right? And so what they do is they become conduits for the system in the matrix and they're perfect. She's perfect. She's young, she's black, she's gay. She is everything that the system rewards right now. And she will, I'm telling you right now, remember that name, Crystal Hudson, she will skyrocket. Because this is what's happening in New York City. Once you get to Bloomberg, that whole kind of vector with these mayors, with maybe the blip with David Dinkins, ends. And then you had de Blasio, who is this weird social, you know, Neiman Marxist. Just bizarre. And so you have this, uh, like, period of leftism that comes into New York and destroys New York. And that's what he's there to do. He's there to destroy New York. Eric Adams is there to rebuild New York, but it's going to be New York in a very different setting or a different kind of New York, a New York that's going to be much more, um, I don't even want to use the word pro-black. That's not, that's not giving pro-black the, the, you know, the, the justice it deserves, but under the cover of being pro-black. Cause I'm going to show you this, um, other project that this guy, uh, Donald Peebles, is involved with called the Affirmation Tower. And that's something that's, you know, on the boards for New York. And I'll, I'll get into that in a second. So Bill de Blasio is there to destroy New York. Eric Adams is there to rebuild New York, but to rebuild New York in a very different kind of way. So just remember that. Keep that in mind. Um, the other person here that is a person of note is Lori Lori Cumbo. So let me show you Lori Cumbo. And you know, whenever you see, um, appointments by Eric Adams, they're political and they're payback appointments. So this Lori Cumbo is an interesting character. Her evolution is bizarre too. Let me show you her, uh, some of these pictures with her. So this is where Lori Cumbo starts off. She's a New York city councilwoman. She's, she's an Aquarius, by the way. A bright smile. She's attractive, right?
And then all of a sudden, something changes with Lori Cumbo. She starts cutting her hair, and she starts looking very severe, right? I mean, look at this picture. I mean, I'm not necessarily here to judge beauty, but, you know, I'm much more in favor of the softer version. Sorry, just, you know. So she goes through this transformation and gets harder and harder and winds up looking more and more like your typical strident um, lesbian activist. So now this is what she looks like. You're like, what goes on here, right? I mean, this is really bizarre. It's almost like people are mutating before our very eyes. And, and again, people can change. Don't get me wrong. I mean, everybody has a right to change and evolve. I'm not here to, um, you know, say people can't do that. But it's just this bizarre transformation. You know, there she is again. Now she has this, um, she's pretty controversial, <laughs> um, in her own way. She came out against all this Jewish development in crown Heights. It was a big controversy with her because there was a lot of uh, black on Jewish crime in crown Heights. And, um, she was basically saying, well, you know, the reason that's happening is because these uh, young black males feel uneasy about their neighborhood because this other group is profiting off the neighborhood in a way that they're not. So they're taking out their frustration on them. And she caught a lot of flack for that. And she had to apologize. And then she wound up giving uh, $100,000 of city money, by the way, not her money, but city money to a Jewish organization. And after that, it went away, right? So she's an Aquarian. She's a little scandalous. She says things at times that are politically inconvenient, right? But now, I can't get this up to pay for it, but Eric Adams just named her as culture czar of New York City. Now, remember, this is the woman. I can't get in there. This is the woman who was working with Eric Adams on the other project, so it's all very incestuous. Eric Adams tried to promote his brother to be his head of security. And there are laws on the books in New York that clearly state that you can't do that. And that, that position paid over $100,000 a year, which in New York is nothing. But you get into that position, you get the perks, total perks. So his brother, this is what happened now. So his brother still gets to be his head of security. However, he only takes a dollar a year salary. Now, what the fuck is that about? How is his brother supposed to live on a dollar a year? Give me a break, okay? He's going to get kickbacks. He's going to get perks. But it's kind of, they're going to let him do it. No, it's okay. He found a little loophole. They always find little loopholes. 
So Eric Adams is surrounded by a very powerful people who know the game inside and out. Inside and out. So he actually met recently with Andrew Cuomo. Let me find this for you. So he is somebody who knows how to um, network, or at the very least, the people around him get him in positions where he can network. So this is the second, this is weird about Cuomo. So he, he's going to run for governor again. Let me show you this story. This is, this shows you how bizarre New York is. Ex-Governor Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Eric Adams dined at La Pavilion restaurant. Multiple sources told page six. Former Governor Andrew Cuomo dined with Eric Adams again Tuesday night at Daniel Bouloud's French eatery. La Pavilion, page six, has learned sources say Cuomo arrived at 7.15 p.m., to the upscale eatery and headed to the back of the restaurant where he spotted Adam's chief of staff, Frank Carone. Carone is a lawyer. Again, he was one of these guys that was appointed. Um, there was a conflict of interest with his appointment. So he had to step away from the law firm that he was representing. He has to step away from the law firm first and then signs on with Adams. So they try to sneak this shit through. Anyway. Uh, dining with power PR veteran Ken Sunshine. Sunshine was chief of staff for Mayor Dinkins from 1990 to 1993. Source says midway through their dinner, Cuomo arrived. The source adds that Cuomo got a friendly reception from diners. Another source tells us Cuomo was stopped by nearly a dozen people to shake hands and take selfies. Are you fucking kidding me? This guy was responsible for killing thousands of parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. And people were in there congratulating him. They should have fucking stuck a steak knife in his jugular vein. This is what's wrong with America. We lionize criminals. We celebrate them. This is the worst case of the Stockholm syndrome I've ever seen. We are collectively being held hostage. America became Patty Hearst. Another source tells us, I'd say people certainly responded to his presence. He had trouble making his way through the restaurant. He's just Mr. Fucking popularity. Cuomo in a Navy suit sat with Corona and sunshine for about 20 minutes. We hear until Adams entered the restaurant sources tell us. Source says Adams made a beeline to the table where Cuomo was seated, hugging Governor Cuomo and the two other men at the table. Shortly after, Adams, who was wearing an open-collar shirt, and Cuomo went together with Carone to have a second dinner. In a private room, a source says, another source says at one point, Adams and Cuomo were arm-in-arm arm as they walked. What the fuck is that about? Page six previously reported that Adams and Cuomo met for about two hours in February at, at a Midtown hotspot, Osteria La Baia. Adams subsequently revealed that Cuomo gave him some 
creative ideas during their get-together. Sources have said Cuomo is giving serious consideration to making a comeback later this year, possibly as an independent, if not as a Democrat. However, Adams has remained tight-lipped about any potential comeback bid by Cuomo, who resigned last summer under threat of impeachment and sexual harassment accusations, which he strongly denied. Look, whatever sexual harassment accusations he had paled in comparison to what he did with COVID. He has to make his decision, the mayor said in an unrelated press conference last month. The mayor added of Cuomo, as I stated, I thought it was important for him to get stepped down at the time, and I thought it was the right decision. Now he would make the determination on what he's going to do with his life in the future. Well, isn't that just fucking brilliant wisdom and insight? Cuomo also, met, also recently met with <clears throat> Peter Ward, former president of the Hotel Trades Council at Fresco by Scotto Restaurant, the Post reported, as well as Reverend Ruben Diaz Sr., there they are together. <clears throat> Cuomo looks fucking insane. He was buoyed by polls that showed him trailing Kathy Hochul, his former lieutenant governor, by single digits in a hypothetical Democratic primary, though he hasn't announced any official plans to run. Meanwhile, Carone tweeted of the meeting with power player Sunshine from COS to another. So appreciative to listen and learn from Ken Sunshine's experience of chief of staff to New York's first African-American mayor. Mayor David Dinkins, may he rest in peace. So there's Corone and Ken Sunshine. It looks totally gruesome. What the fuck? Is that bad? Is that bad plastic surgery or Botox? Holy crap. So it looks like uh, Andrew Cuomo is thinking about running for governor again. And Eric Adams hanging out, meeting with him, arm in arm, going for that second dinner. Not him, but Frank Carone and Ken Sunshine. So I'm going to drop down into something a bit more gritty. And this is something, this is a story I discovered last night. Eric Adams is a part of it. And always with Eric Adams, you will find him connected to real estate, either with zoning, rezoning, um, taking bribes or contributions from major real estate players. Eric Adams is the perfect mayor for New York. Perfect. Because he is so utterly corruptible. So this is a very weird story. And Eric Adams is a part of it. It's entitled, titled The Murder of Sonny Shoe. And again, we're dealing with real estate. So this is a blog that's been set up to put the details of this case together, which are very bizarre. This blog is a repository of documentation regarding the death of mortgage fraud victim and anti-corruption activist Sun Ming, Sunny Shu, and the ensuing cover-up by law enforcement, including the NYPD and the Queens DA, 
There are many pages on this site that are not visible on the opening page. Please use the search function to locate articles of interest regarding this case. So I'm gonna go through this just a little bit here. This has to do with the correspondence with Eric Adams regarding his letter to the FBI. So apparently you can read the entire uh, Sonny Shoe case here. I wanna go back to the other. So it's the death of Sonny Shoe. Let me just read this here. We'll go back, this sets everything up, right? The cover-up of the death of anti-corruption whistleblower by numerous agencies and the mainstream media. In the months following the February killing of Trayvon Martin, whatever, I don't wanna say whatever, but it's not, it's, this is not, they're using this as like getting the attention of the press and taking up, you know, all the space and all the oxygen. Meanwhile, what's going on with Sonny Shu fundamentally is even worse. All right, let's get into this. Uh, story that dominate headlines across the nation around the world. Mainstream media venues have dedicated thousands of hours and countless pages to every conceivable angle of the story, including baseless speculation about unverified facts, even the imagined motivations of the victim and killer. Why has this story granted such intense attention and passion? Okay, here we go. The ramification of this case that an American citizen can be killed and the law enforcement can simply neglect. There's, okay, so they're trying to make this connection between Trayvon Martin and the Sunny Shoe. This is completely different, okay? It is not, it has, not, it has no connection or bearing to the Trayvon Martin case. None whatsoever. But, the, but because Truth Out is um, socialist, social borderline leftist, they're going to try to connect it. The failure of a tiny police force to investigate an apparently unpremeditated killing in a backwater of Florida. Okay, get off Trayvon Martin. So we finally get to the paragraph. This is precisely what appears to have happened in the case of Sun Ming, Sunny Shu, an anti-corruption whistleblower's bludgeon death on July 26, 2010. The details of this case and the reasons you have never heard of it will be the subject of this article. In early 2009, Sunny Shu walked in the office of Black Star News and recounted to publisher Milton Almaty the story of his 10-year struggle with corruption at every level of New York government. Mr. Shu, a legal immigrant from tai Taiwan, was a small, wiry man with a mischievous sense of humor who could express fierce outrage one moment and chuckle at the absurdity of it all in the next. Though his English was rudimentary, he radiated intelligence and humble self-assurance. Shu made his living as a computer hardware and software engineer and was creating a social network for Chinese-speaking people when his troubles began. He also rented out two rooms in his Flushing Queens home for extra income. Above all, Shu was a peaceful warrior who felt that fighting for one's rights was a patriotic duty, a privilege living in America that was to some degree its own reward. Shu's problem centered around his residential property, a simple two-story house at 4514 158th Street in Flushing, Queens, which he said had been wrongfully wrestled or wrested from him by a mortgage company with the aid of Judge Joseph Golia from the state Supreme Court in Queens. Shu claimed Golia was corrupt as it consistently ruled against him in favor of the bank to wrongfully ensure that he never recovered his property. Shu's story of the struggle with Judge Golia was so compelling that the Black Star News covered in three-part series entitled Junk Justice. 
which ran beginning in July 2009. At that time, BSN believed that exposing Mr. Xu's struggle with judicial corruption and abuse would protect Xu against his, um, from reprisals against him. Typically, that was not the case. Tragically, that was not the case. The background story, mortgage fraud and court malfeasance. Xu's ordeal began over 10 years ago when a bank representative knocked on his door and said he was there to inspect his house for its new owner. The problem was that Xu had never sold the house. Xu's house was owned under the name of his brother, HSU, which is also Xu, so his brother was Xu Xu. And it was soon discovered that someone had forged his brother's signature on a power of attorney document and used the forged power of attorney to illegally sell the property to a fraudulent buyer. Xu immediately alerted all relevant authorities and parties, including the police, the bank that held the mortgage, Sentex Home Equity, and the title insurer of the property, Old Republic Title Insurance. He wrote letters to the appropriate executives at Sentex, alerting them that the sale was fraudulent. Xu's brother was able to prove to the police that he had, he had been in Taiwan on the date of the fraudulent signing and could not have signed the papers before notary in New York. Soon thereafter, the forgers were arrested by the NYPD and were eventually prosecuted and pled guilty of forgery. Xu expected that with all the evidence in hand, the fraudulent sale would be quickly invalidated in his own return. In fact, it was only the beginning of the nightmare. Despite all the warnings and documentation submitted by Xu regarding the fraud, including the criminal complaints, Sentex continued to act as if the sale had been legitimate. Sonny continued to send mortgage payments to Sentex, but Sentex sent them back, insisting that Xu was no longer the owner. Incredibly, in December 2001, Sentex filed a lawsuit against Xu and the fraudulent owners in state Supreme Court, Queens County. The bank wanted the default judgment on the property and foreclosure, claiming the new owners were delinquent on mortgage payments. In reality, of course, there were never any legal new owners. The Sentex versus Shu case went before Judge Golia in Queens County. Shu immediately filed an order to show cause, requesting a temporary restraining order on the lawsuit and asking Golia to allow the detectives who arrested the fraudster, fraudsters to testify on the record. Shu said he was stunned when Judge Golia denied the motion and ignored the document. Okay, so this is what happens, right? So Judge, this Judge Golia seems to be complicit in this whole thing. Let's get back to Eric Adams. This is where Eric Adams falls into this whole mix. At the time of this, Eric Adams was a New York State Senator. And Sonny Shu had reached out to him. Correspondence with Eric Adams regarding his letter to the FBI. Senator Adams met with Will Gallison, Elena Sassauer, and Sonny Shu on April 30th, 2010. So this is how long Eric Adams has been on the mix or in the mix on this shit. Just seven weeks before Sonny's murder, Sonny told Adams about the threats against him by the NYPD and the corruption of Judge Golia in regard to the mortgage fraud. So apparently Golia had, or somebody had dispatched NYPD to threaten Sonny Shu. In response, Adams personally asked Sonny to write an action plan for his Senate Judiciary Committee, a patently ridiculous request. Here is a recording with our meeting from Eric Adams. Now, I don't have that recording here. I'd love to have it. 
On July 10, 2010, Gallison asked Adams to write a letter to the FBI in urging an investigation. The letter Adams wrote was illiterate, ineffectual, and factually entirely wrong. The letter of August 13th is my response to Adams regarding this letter. This shows that Adams had no will to further the investigation of Shu. His letter to the FBI was so weak that it actually undermined the argument for an investigation. Upon receipt of this letter, Senator Adams never amended his letter to the FBI and never responded to this or subsequent communications. So here's the letter. Dear Senator, thanks for your time this morning. I'm glad you appreciate the situation. Here's an outline of the Sunny Shoe case. So it goes through all of this, right? It goes through everything. Adams does nothing. Nothing. Seven weeks later, Sonny Shu was dead. He actually put out a video, which I'll play here briefly. It's not very long. Here we go. Okay. Okay. Hi, my name is Sonny Shu. Uh, I have, I have. By a complaint to the FBI and the New York State uh, Unified Court EC Committee about the Judge Joseph Gloria falsify uh, his financial disclosure statement. And uh, I have submitted evidence to the FBI uh, recently. FBI returned me a copy of the uh, evidence that I sent to the FBI. Okay. And today, uh, April 9th, uh, Unified Court, Unified Court, uh, EC Committee Director Janice Hover, she told me Judge Joseph Gloria already amended his uh, financial disclosure statement. It means uh, my evidence is true, at least uh, he was forced to amend. Uh, he misrepresentation on his financial disclosure statement. And uh, for the security issue, for the security concern, I make this recording. And uh, if anything wrong goes to me, it should be come from George Gloria and his people. Because before I have been kidnapping, kidnapping by his people, right. by his and threatened and intimidated by his people, not uh, while the complaint against uh, George Gloria. So I make this I make this recording for the safety, for the protection. If anything wrong, please goes to the Judge Gloria and his people. So essentially, what he says there is that he's making this video. So if anything happens to him, you know who's behind it. Well, something did happen to him. He got bludgeoned to death. And Eric Adams, who could have helped him out, who could have brought the FBI in, although who knows what would have happened there. What does he do? He writes an illiterate and ineffectual letter and undermines the whole thing. So Sonny Shoe's blood is on the hands of Eric Adams. And this shows you what Eric Adams has been doing. 
not only as 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 a run up to being the mayor of New York. And his profile is troubling. I'm just going to be really upfront here. Because number one, he's not very bright. Clearly, he's dyslexic and he can't write. When he communicates, he Shannon Sharp um, sounds like Lord Windsor compared to Eric Adams at times. Just saying. Okay. Oh, I know. Here's Rosie. Look at Rosie coming into the show. Nice to see you, Rosie. So Adams is a model. Kamala Harris is a model. These are the models of not very intelligent and extremely compromised people. I don't think Katanji Brown Jackson's that intelligent. She's more intelligent than Kamala, Kamala Harris. I can, I can assure you of that. That's not hard, by the way. So now you have this appointment of the underclass into positions of rank and power, but they're compromised. Eric Adams is compromised. And he's figured out how to play the game and to be compromisable so that people in positions of power will continue to support him. It's dangerous, absolutely dangerous. I wanted to get in Ted Kaczynski more today, but I'm going to have to put that off only because I wanted to bring this up. And then you have like Lori Cumbo, who's this other group, like Lori Cumbo and um, Crystal Hudson. They're this other um, attache of the underclass who have, you know, the, the sexual identitarian and, you know, egalitarian social Marxist, you know, um, program running because they'll be promoted and they'll be promoted because they can't connect in with special interest groups and special interest groups are where the power's at now. Anyway, to be continued, Tomorrow, um, a Friday forecast to be determined. Use your head in order to serve what's real. Use your heart set when it was possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Take care and bye for now.